few weeks ago, I spent about an hour reading information on the internet concerning the history of the Cold War. From the end of World War II in 1945 until the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, the thoughts of at least two generations of U.S. citizens were gripped by the threats of communism and nuclear war. After only a few minutes of reading about the Iron Curtain, atomic bombs, the Berlin Crisis, the Korean War, Vietnam War, the arms race, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and more, I was amazed at how I was drawn into a world of fear and despair. People built fallout shelters. Suspected communist sympathizers were hunted down. Traitors were executed. Wars were fought to keep communism at bay. And U.S. citizens agonized over the possibility of nuclear catastrophe. The very next morning, there was an article in the paper about Cold War websites. One man quoted in the article implied that such memories hit too close to home as he remembered living through duck and cover drills at school desks and the fear of radioactive fallout getting into the milk supply. Many of us who lived through those decades literally entertained the thought that the planet could possibly come to an end. I was amazed as I reviewed this data about our recent history by the sorrow and sense of despair that was portrayed, the reports and images were overwhelming. Human history has moved us into a new era of fear and despair. The current global war on terror has become the latest threat to the well-being of humanity. Beginning with September 11th and the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, terror has been accelerated by the nuclear program in Iran and nuclear bomb tests in North Korea. From the Cold War to the War on Terror, our world appears to be balanced on the edge of annihilation. This state of affairs is compounded by the poor spiritual and moral climate in our country. Murder and pornography, adultery, rampant divorce, abortion, robbery, molestation, just a few of the headlines in our news. Closer to home, we might add our own personal struggles with lying and anger and cheating and the neglect of our walk with God. All of this creates a political, social, and spiritual atmosphere characterized by fear and despair. Though the historical circumstances were quite different, such a desperate atmosphere was experienced by ancient Israel in the Bible. The message which God used to address ancient Israel's world speaks to our own global situation. The situation in which the children of Israel found themselves during the 6th century BC could also be described as a political, social, and spiritual atmosphere of fear and despair. The prophets had long preached condemnation against Israel for her sin and idolatry. And in the 6th century, Judah actually experienced a hot war as her people endured destruction and exile at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. The temple, understood to be the place of God's presence, had been torn down and burned. Jerusalem, the city of David, was left in ruins. The promised land, once flowing with milk and honey, was devastated as a wasteland. All the great signs of Israel's glory and relationship to God were destroyed. Now in exile in Babylon, the children of Judah had nothing but memories and guilt over all that had transpired.
Surrounded by pagan practices, idolatry, and the worship of false gods, the children of Judah were lost and hopeless. Many likely understood that they deserved to be there. They did not deserve God's attention. They were no longer worthy to be called his people. The prophets had made that all too clear many times over. Imagine the despair of such physical loss compounded by the realization that God had abandoned them and they deserved it. It is to this crisis of hopelessness and loss that the voice of the prophet is sent once again. It is an announcement that the children of Judah desperately needed to hear. It is also an announcement for which we should recognize our own serious need. Hear the words of the prophet. Jeremiah, from chapter 33, verses 14 to 22. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety, and this is the name by which she shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time. Then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be counted, and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. This particular announcement focuses on the fulfillment of God's intentions concerning kingship and priesthood. In regard to both King David and the Levitical priests, the text speaks of one who will come and a multitude who will follow as descendants. The focus of this passage in Jeremiah is the promise of right leadership, both political and religious. In the past, Israel had experienced times with poor leadership or no leadership at all. For example, consider the two very odd accounts at the end of the book of Judges. The first story describes a young Levite. He serves as a personal priest for an individual and his household idols. A group of soldiers from the tribe of Dan robs the individual by taking his household idols, and the young Levite initially objects, but soon is persuaded to join the group as their new priest. 
The story is about how the tribe of Dan seeks their inheritance and secures a land for themselves, but in the process they gain their own personal Levitical priest along with some idols, a graven image, and a molten image. The account ends with a picture of the tribe at peace in their new home, worshiping stolen idols. And notice anything wrong with this picture? In case we missed it, the narrator ends the account with this subtle statement. Meanwhile, the house of God was at Shiloh. There's something absurd about this picture. An individual and a tribe in Israel are described as going about their business in relationship to household idols and graven images and personal priests and nothing in the account indicates that anyone seems to sense there's anything wrong here. Meanwhile, the house of God is at Shiloh, seemingly detached from the entire scene as God is ignored. The second story at the end of Judges is even more strange. This story also involves a Levitical priest. This Levite has a concubine who runs away from home. He chases after her, finds her at her father's house, and plans to bring her back home. On the journey, they spend the night with an old man in the city of Gibeah in the territory of Benjamin. That night, wicked men from the city pound on the old man's door and demand that the Levite be brought out to them so that they might have sexual relationships with him. The old man objects and offers his daughter and the Levite's concubine instead. It turns out that the concubine was thrown out to the evil men who rape and abuse her all night long and in the morning she appears as dead. So the Levite places her on his donkey and takes her home. He then takes a knife and slices her into 12 pieces and sends her body parts throughout the land of Israel. It is in the book of Judges. You have to read the last few chapters. <laughs> the tribes of Israel were gathered and told about these horrible acts which took place in Gibeah in the territory of Benjamin. And in reaction to these shameful deeds, civil war broke out. All the tribes of Israel fought against their brother tribe of Benjamin. It took three battles. Many lives were lost. And in the end, the tribe of Benjamin was nearly wiped out. In fact, Israel began to mourn because one of their own tribes was practically cut off. Now it's not difficult to recognize the chaos in these two stories. Both of these accounts at the end of Judges are recorded without any real theological explanation. There's no prophetic judgment against the idolatrous and wicked actions which take place. There's no indication of punishment or consequence for what happens. There's only a cryptic statement which is repeated at the very beginning of the first account and at the end of the second story. This statement surrounds or envelopes these two strange accounts. The statement is simply this. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The picture of chaos at the end of the book of Judges is explicitly associated with the lack of proper leadership from priests and kings. The period of Judges concludes with Levitical priests involved in tales which defy the imagination in a community which is supposed to be characterized by covenant relationship with God. 
We encounter a community crying out for some sense of direction and leadership, but for which there is no king and everyone is left to fend for themselves. It's just one example of the corruption and wickedness which was a major contributor to the downfall and exile of the children of Israel. And now the children of Israel in Jeremiah's day are left with memories of failure, feelings of guilt, and the depression of deserving abandonment by God. The painful and hopeless situation of Israel in exile is not alien to our own time and place. I don't need to rehearse in detail the failure of leadership politically and religiously in our own day, from sex scandals and the telling of lies among presidents to adultery, embezzlement, and child molestation among priests and ministers of the gospel. Like the children of Israel, we are all too influenced by our leadership. After all, as recorded in a newspaper a few years ago, is the gang rape of a woman in New York in the midst of a crowd of cheering and applauding onlookers any less absurd than the slicing up of a concubine in ancient Israel? We're members of a human community which bears the shame of such wickedness. It is reflected even in the subtle deceit and unfaithfulness which may stain our own households, even our own hearts and hands. As a result, there are too many times when we sense our guilt, feel abandoned by God, and fear there is no way back to reconciliation with the Lord. It is for such a time of hopelessness that the word of the Lord comes through those like Jeremiah. The prophet proclaims that God will cause to spring forth a righteous branch of David who will execute justice on the earth. God also promises to multiply the descendants of David his servant and the Levites his ministers. Thus this word of hope to the exiles promises leadership in terms of a king and priest as well as numerous descendants who will follow in the steps of the just and righteous one who comes. When we think of the power and authority of a king, Traditionally, we think of might and strength, superior weapons and power. Whoever has the most and greatest of these is the one who wins and rules. This traditional view is well illustrated in Daniel's vision in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, which depicts gruesome and fierce beasts ripping and clawing and tearing at each other in order to gain dominion. But in contrast to such a tradition, Jesus Christ as king reflects a kingdom of power and authority which is different than any we might imagine. It is characterized by inverse phrases such as, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The greatest shall be the servant of all. The one who loses his life shall find it. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. It is characterized by the opposite of what we recognize as the norm. Consider the exhortations, when someone strikes you, turn the other cheek and offer yourselves a living sacrifice. Christ displays a power and authority that does not 
defeat and conquer, destroy and kill, strike or beat its opponent. Rather, Christ displays a power which reverses such approaches. This power somehow takes in, absorbs, receives pain or an attack or a blow from an opponent. This power is able somehow to dispel or disarm such pain so that ultimately the power of the opponent is rendered harmless. The core of this undescribable power is love. Love which is able somehow to take in suffering and evil and return forgiveness and kindness and favor. Christ portrays a kingship of power and authority which rules without weapons or threats or destruction or violence, but rather wields a love which takes in death and returns resurrection. This view of power is also illustrated in the vision of Daniel 7. As the fierce beasts maul each other, Daniel envisions the Ancient of Days, who without effort removes dominion from the fearsome beasts. Then Daniel sees one like the Son of Man floating with the clouds. And with no indication of violence or weapons or size, this one is given an eternal kingdom and everlasting dominion. In a similar manner, Christ displays a unique view of priesthood. The picture of priests in the Bible is of persons set apart as much as possible from all defilement, that they might serve as ministers on behalf of the people in the presence of the Most Holy God. The entire community of Israel was called to be holy and separate from the nations. The priesthood, however, was held to an even higher call of separation. The sacrificial system detailed in the Pentateuch makes very clear that God cannot abide impurity or sin. Israel must continually cleanse the members of its community and the temple which is the place of God's presence. If the temple becomes overly defiled by sin and impurity, God's presence must leave and abandon the community. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel pictures that very tragedy as he envisions the Spirit of the Lord leaving the temple. That is exactly what the exiles whom Jeremiah addresses, fear has happened. God has abandoned them due to their sin and impurity. But in direct contrast to that fear, Jeremiah announces that God is bringing forth a new priesthood in the midst of restoration. As with kingship, this promised priesthood is ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. As with kingship, once again Christ portrays a most unique approach to priesthood. Christ himself is sinless and holy and pure without question. However, he maintains holiness not by meticulously avoiding impurity, but rather in the midst of shocking displays of contact with impurity. Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, of breaking the Sabbath. He freely associates with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. Christ even touches lepers, direct contact with impurity. What is unimaginable here is that God, 
Holy God who cannot abide in purity, for whom the temple must be regularly cleansed, lest God be forced to abandon the community. This same God in Jesus Christ touches our sin and my impurity. Literally in Jesus Christ, God defiles himself for the love of his children, for you and for me. As with a power which takes in death and returns resurrection, Christ is somehow able to touch sin and impurity and turn it to holiness and righteousness. The miracles of forgiveness and justification come with his wondrous touch. Admittedly, it is not that God is defiled, but God is able to cleanse even as he comes in contact with the repentant sinner. Jeremiah proclaims that God will multiply the descendants of King David and the descendants of Levitical priests. As followers of Christ, we participate in the ultimate fulfillment of such words. We are called to live like Christ. We're called to display the kingly power of love and the priestly ministry of holiness. The Spirit of Christ enables us. How then shall we live as kings and priests? Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. We live as kings not concerned with securing our own earthly empires of my time and my space. Rather, we live secure in the eternal provisions of God. Thus, we need not fight for our place at the head of the line in the grocery store or our rightful turn merging on the freeway. We need not destroy our enemy by returning a volley of abusive language when insulted. We need not use the weapons of anger and spite and manipulation to conquer those who threaten us. We live as priests who minister to the needs of those around us unafraid of being defiled by the world. Thereby our community will see a class of royalty, a division of priesthood which functions on the basis of love and service, following the lead of the one who is coming. Kingly and priestly leadership, characterized by love and holiness, comes to us initially in the form of the baby in the manger. We acknowledge his coming every year at Advent, continually keeping before us the leadership of Christ in our lives. Let us forever celebrate this coming of the righteous branch of David.